Amen. Man, go ahead, have a seat. Ushers can come forward. Let's give out of how God has given to us. It's all from him. It's all for him. Uh, so today we're wrapping up a, fa- a series on family and just like what is this? How do we make it work? And where does God fit in in all that? Uh, and this week I read a story that really kind of hits what we were looking at, at family and, and how we relate to God and relate to this. Uh, and it said that the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, said that the best way for people to dispose of old food is to convert it into animal food. So like our leftovers and our food trash and our compost and all that stuff, the best thing to do is to convert that into animal food, which in my mind completely elevates one thing above all else. And that is as a result of this, if we're really going to like transfer our old human leftovers, throwaway stuff into to animal food, it means the most amazing machine on the face of planet Earth is a pig is a pig. Why? Because what a pig does is it will take all of our leftover stuff, all the stuff that we throw away, and turn it into ribs, carnitas tacos, a chorizo breakfast burrito, sausage, bacon, pork chops. For the record, when pork chops doesn't even make the top five, like that is a legit machine. It takes trash and turns it into a chorizo breakfast burrito. That is the miracle of science. Like, I am so excited about that. And I'm thinking about that this week, and thinking about what we're going to talk about, and like, that is a perfect picture of breakfast, for, just for one. Uh, I just love to spend a day, like, eating the, the pig's contributions to this. Let me start out with chorizo breakfast burrito, pork carnitas tacos, and then like ribs as first dinner, and then pork chop as second. Oh, that'd be good. Uh, but but it, what it also reminded me of, back to the Bible, uh, is what Jesus wants to do with all of us. So as we look at today, we've been in family uh, for the last few weeks, and for some of you, you've taken absolute beating because you're like, what happens on the screen and in the Bible is not what I'm going back to at my house or my apartment. Uh, but what it does is it really opens our eyes to God's heart to restore and to redeem and to build back up. And so today we're finishing uh, where we've been as, as a church, walking through God's plan for the family and, and what family made new looks like. And we're going to end at the cross. For us as Christians, if you're here and you're not yet a Jesus follower, the reason the cross means everything to us, the reason that Christians have crosses everywhere, is that is the invitation for all of us into a relationship with God. It declares to all of us who are Christians boldly, clearly, loudly, that we are not okay, and that is okay, because Jesus is going to work in us to restore us, to take the trash that we bring him, the life, or the, the, the ways that our lives just kind of cultivate that, and just like a pig, turn it into bacon, sausage, pork chops, chorizo, carnitas, all those things. And the reason we're doing this, the reason that we look at family uh, is because family is difficult. Family life is spiritual warfare. My family life is spiritual warfare. We got to see that this week during Summer Spectacular because so many of you volunteered. And you're like, I want to help. I want to do whatever. Just don't put me with my kids. And you're so willing to do the job of the church, whether you have kids or whether you don't have kids, to raise up the next generation to follow Jesus and love Jesus, especially when the kids that you get to invest your time and your energy and your sweat in are somebody else's. Like you get to send them home at the end of the night and not see them for like 22 more hours. We got to see that as a church family. 
We get to see us as a church family, like, lean into raising up kids to follow Jesus and love Jesus the best way that we could over five nights, some of whom we have never, ever seen before. And the reason we do this is because we know for anyone who's ever been in a family that family life is spiritual warfare. I was talking with a bunch of guys earlier this week, and it reminded me, like, each different stage of parenting is its own, like, PTSD group, all right? You lose 700 hours of sleep on average in your baby's first year of life. And then the effect that it has on your brain just gets worse. And then there's teen years, and thank God my daughter's only 11 and a half because I'm still like a year and a half for a right? No, she's not even 11 and a half. Sweet, I got more time until she enters uh, the crazy 13s and all that stuff. But we all know family life is spiritual warfare because of what it pulls out of us, the way that the, the hurts are worse, the worries are deeper, and some of you know that from experience, and the rest of us, hey, good luck, have fun. But family life is spiritual warfare, and family was created to help us understand God. Family was created to help us understand God. At the very beginning of creation, God looked at you and me, and he's like, hey, they're drowning, I'll throw them a baby, let's see what happens. But family was created to help us know and understand God. At the very beginning of the Bible, like page one in yours, God is talking, he's with the Holy Spirit, and he's with Jesus before Jesus put on skin and came to live like us uh, and among us. And he said, let's make humans in our image. I want them to grow up. I want them to do life similar to how I would. So when you look at other people, part of the reason for us as Christians that every single person matters from womb to tomb is that we are all made in the image of God. And God says, through this life, you're going to understand how I am. As you look around, as you look at creation, as you grow in relationships, you're going to understand more about me. And so we get to see this in the very beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, which is the first chapter, because it means the beginning, so I guess they get to go first. Uh, It's the first book, chapter 2, verse 18. God says, I'm going to give you uh, a description of marriage right now, and it's not just that you can consolidate health insurance into one package instead of having two separate things, but, but to show you my heart for you and my love for you. There's a guy named Adam that, that God makes, and he gives him this very black and white, like an accountant with a spreadsheet, and everything's got its box list of stuff to do. And after Adam had done all those things, it says in Genesis 2, it says, the Lord said that it was not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper who's just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call him, and the man chose names for each one. And he gave the names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. And then the Lord made a woman from the ribs and brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she is taken out of me. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And now the man and the woman uh, were both naked, and they felt no shame. If you look at this, what it goes from is like this, this cold spreadsheet, do this, do this, do this, do this, to Adam breaking out in a song because he's so excited about what God has brought him. He's so excited about the relationship that happens there. And it says the two of them they're both naked and there's no shame and that's not so much to do with nudity it's so much to do about the security that they feel with each other and then it gets broken 
And that's not the only relationship. Kids are, are brought into it so that they learn from mom and dad, so that they trust that mom and dad are always right in every situa- situation, which happens to all of us like never. Uh, and and that, goes to, that goes to the dirt also. And so what we see very quickly in the book at the very, very beginning of the Bible is sin enters into the world and everything gets crazy. And what we continue to see throughout our lives, throughout our city, throughout our culture is families are being broken in every way possible because of sin. The devil hates families because the devil hates God. And so God created families to show us his perfect father heart, his perfect desire to provide for his kids just like any good parent would. He does that to to show us what God is like. He creates marriage to show us God's heart uh, for relationship, for companionship, for different species, men and women coming together in one flesh. And so what does the devil do? He wants to come in and he wants to tear all that apart. So for any of you who have ever ruined a really, really nice moment with your spouse very quickly, this verse is for us, all right? Because right after they were both naked, nobody felt any shame The next chapter comes. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, this is the serpent, did God really say you must not eat the the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. And God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and that its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves." Instantly, the relationship is broken. The distortion between the people trusting God and believing in God for every good thing, that's broken. The relationship between the husband and the wife is broken. The amount of trust and security that's there is broken, and so they begin to hide. They begin to cover themselves because all of a sudden, security is replaced with shame. And so God, as the loving father, as what any of us would do in this situation, he comes to look for him. In verse 8, he says, When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? The man replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And the man replied, It was the woman you gave me who made me eat the fruit. She gave it to me, and I ate it. Boom, instantly they go from total security with each other to the point that, that, that they have absolutely no shame about who they are before each other to blaming each other and fighting amongst themselves as a couple. Like they did that all in eight verses. I don't know what you are as a spouse, but going from total security to that, like that's remarkable. We just need to stand back and applaud. Like that's destroying a relationship quickly. I don't know if, I don't know if I could do it that fast. But immediately sin comes into the world and splinters husband and wife. Right after that, it's brother from brother. Later in the same book, it's father from daughter and uncle from cousin. Like all this just in the first few chapters of sin, darkness, entering the world, us doing things opposite from the way that God would, that's called sin, comes into the world. And immediately there's a trail of bodies behind it as lives are being ruined because sin comes into the world. 
And families continue to be where we see so much brokenness, where we see so much pain, where we see so much heartache. We see men and women living in rebellion to God, living, refusing to live uh, as, as people who love each other sacrificially and who, who serve each other willingly and joyfully in marriage, outside of marriage. We get to see just so much disaster coming. We see parents who don't take care and don't love their kids the way that they're supposed to. Kids who rebel and fight against their parents and don't take care of their parents as they age as they're supposed to. We get to see this fleshed out in the church family because as the family of God, living and worshiping in the house of God, we've got a responsibility to do this also. And instead of taking care of each other and bearing each other's burdens, we stab each other in the back when nobody's looking. And families are broken in every way because of sin. In every way. And so what we get so excited about, about the cross as Christians, is that that's the moment where our brokenness is met. God doesn't walk in and say, you know what, let's just pretend it didn't happen. Everything's okay. You're all good with me. I'm okay with you. We're all right. You just do you, and I'll do me, and I'll bless you and forgive you, and, and answer all those prayers that you ask when there's a cop behind you. God walks right at our brokenness. The cross makes us right with God because the cross redeems the family and gives us an identity and an inheritance with God. It's the incredible beauty, brokenness, justice, mercy, peace, and wrath all in one complicated mess, just like a family. And the cross is, is crucified glory. It's where God says, this is how much I love you, that I'm going to go through excruciating, unimaginable physical pain to do what you could not do for yourself. And that's to live a perfect life. So that when we stand before God, God doesn't see all the things that we have done that push God away and say we're doing life our way. We see Jesus' perfect blood covering all of our sins. We see Jesus trading his identity and his perfection for our complete imperfection. And none of that made sense at the time that it was happening. It's one of these things that we can look backwards at and see how God used everything along the way to paint the picture. This is how much I love you. This is what you mean to me. And so there's a doctor around the time that Jesus lived uh, who walked around taking eyewitness reports about who this Jesus was, what he did that was so exceptional, and how it affects us decades later as the guy was writing and now centuries later as we read it. And in Luke 23 it says this. It says, when they came to a place called the skull, they nailed Jesus to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. And the crowd watched, and the leaders scoffed. He saved others. Let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him, too, by offering a drink of sour wine. And they called out to him, if you really are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And a sign was fastened above him with these words, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. And he said, So you're the Messiah, the one sent by God to, to save people. Is that who you are? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested. He said, Do you not fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today that you will be with me in paradise. By this time it was about noon and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. 
And Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. Jesus endures the worst of of human treatment, of human punishment, of, of human torture. And even while doing that, he's saving people. One of the people that followed Jesus closely, that was Jesus' closest follower at that point. He writes this later on in his life. It says, Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what's right. By his wounds, we are healed. And once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. And then after that, after Jesus died, what he did that was so foundational for us was three days later, he rose from the dead. He walked out of his own grave. He was one million percent dead. He didn't pass out. He was one million percent dead. And God raised him from the dead, and Jesus walked out of his own grave to prove to everyone looking and everyone still looking back at that moment 2,000 years ago that everything that he said about forgiveness, everything he said about new life, everything he said about God's love for people was completely true. And so we paint that over our families, and we see three things really stick out. The first thing that that we said in the last point was that the cross redeems the family. It's redeems. It's where God looks straight at us, straight at our sins, straight at the death and darkness that we bring into the world, and walks right at it to forgive us for it. He pays the penalty for our sin. If we look at our family and said, man, my family, you don't understand. We are too late. We are too far gone. It is too much of a mess behind me for this to actually do anything. That's a horrible thing to say about God. The God who loves you, the God who chases after you, the God who sees you as you are and says, I can work with that person. I can bring life to that family. I can bring life to that area. We're celebrating God's redemptive power, and that means that stuff's broken. That means that we admit that there's something that God had to do to actually bring redemption into our lives. What he does is he takes our trash and he makes it into something beautiful, and he, turns, he does that by changing our identity. That's the second thing. The cross redeems the family and gives us an identity. This made no sense in the moment where we're looking at it, where Jesus has stretched out his arms as far apart as possible and nails punched through them and he's hung on a tree, which in that culture meant that this guy is definitely cursed. God is against this person who's executed by the most powerful government in that day as a rebel. Nobody would want to follow this guy. If we look at this just from like a pan out version, like there's nothing good in this situation. Jesus, who said he's going to build a new kingdom, that this new kingdom is going to take over everything, is taken out, stripped naked, and publicly humiliated in front of everybody. There's no good identity in that in the moment, except for people like us. You know, people like us who have baggage in our lives who've been through tough things, who have made bad decisions, whose sin was being paid for on that day by that Savior. We can look at that and say, Jesus went through all of this so I wouldn't have to. We can look at this and say that, that the, the, the hurt that we've shouldered, that we've walked through in life, Jesus can pay for. Jesus has paid for. And as he offers us and extends to us new life, that we have a rock-solid reminder of what that looks like And that's the fact that Jesus died for our sin but didn't stay dead. And that as Jesus walked out of his own grave, we sing a song that that uses the phrase that he borrowed the grave. I think that's so perfect because it means that our sin was one million percent paid for and then it was returned and we no longer have to carry it. Like think about this and and 
we're going to fast forward this. Just pretend that this happened in 2019, all right? You can buy a casket at Costco. You can get everything, vegetables, and while you're at it, you can get a casket. Imagine that, like you walk into Costco and they've got that return line. There's a dude with long hair, a beard, holding his hand, holes in his hands, pushing his casket back in. So what's your reason for returning it? I don't need it anymore. I only need it for three days. Here's the receipt. Now we're good. I'm walking out free. That's because our God borrowed our grave. He said, this is what these people have done. This is sin that we created, that we put on the cross. And what Jesus said is, I'm giving them a new identity. I want to do a new identity, not just in them, but in their whole family. A guy who understood this better than anyone who used to hate Christians until he became a Christian. He says this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ, and I think he meant anyone, Whoa, what if I've got, what if I'm an addict? Anyone. What if I'm divorced? Anyone. I hate my parents. Well, you're a teenager. Just get over it. <laughs> Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. It got left at the return aisle at Costco, and a new life has begun. All the damage we brought into the world, the scars that we've created on us and created on others, let's be honest. We're nailed to the cross, and Jesus walked away. We can't be recursed. We can't be redamned. We can't be repunished for the things that we've done because Jesus knows about them better than we do, and Jesus paid for them. I think an area that, that I want to hit on this morning, and we're going to respond for this in a few minutes, uh, is the whole area of generational sin. If you look at your family, you look at things that you have, struggles that you have, and you're just like, well, that's, that's the way my family is. Uh, it doesn't have to stay that way. So when Jesus talks about a new identity, that affects our last name just as much as it affects the last thing that we did. It affects our family tree. If you've got things in your life that have been passed down from grandparents to your parents to you to your kids, uh, Jesus is in, the is the, in the business of bringing life to where there's death, of restoring things that we've brought into the world and things that have been passed down to us generationally uh, through sin. And one of the ways that we can respond is we've got bookmarks up here because we have bookmarks for everything, but they help us pray through things. Other than, please God, help me not be like my mom or my dad, or please God, let this thing that's in me not get passed down. Uh, these are going to walk us through how to pray, God, cut this sin off with me and let it not pass on to my next generation. That's one thing because our family isn't something that's untouchable to Jesus. What's been passed down to us is not untouchable to Jesus. Galatians 2.20 explains this. It says that this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. That's what we've said. The old life is gone and a new life has come. So we're totally new. We are different people because of what Jesus has done for us. The second thing that, that God says in here is, is we get a new, see he redeems the family, gives us a new identity, and he also gives us a new inheritance. In our culture, we think inheritance, that means like we're going to get some stuff and it's going to be great. But what it really means in Jesus' culture when all this happened is, is it's a new way of doing things. For us, party, or for them back in their day, their inheritance was learning how to run the family business. If your dad's a fisherman, you're probably going to be a fisherman, so you need to learn how to catch fish or else you're going to really enjoy fasting because you're going to do it all the time. So he's saying, I'm going to give you a new way of doing things. I'm going to teach you how to live life. That's one of the things that we get from God is none of us are expected to absolutely know everything about how to do life. That's why we have a church family. 
That's why we have a village to teach us how to do life, how to work, how to make this Christianity thing not just impact us, but bleed down into our kids and into our families and up to our parents. That we're going to be generation changers because God's going to give us a new way to live. I don't know a whole lot about tying ropes. Uh, I've picked up a few things from people uh, along the way. We were hanging up the canopies and stuff, and like Swanson would talk about this different type of rope that we're using. I'm like, I don't have a clue what that is. He said, well, you're holding it right now. I'm like, this is great. And so uh, I had to bring 10 chairs over to a party that we were at yesterday, and I had three kids with me, and I only had room for six chairs in the car. So I thought the chairs would probably tie better on top of the car than the kids would. Uh, so I, I did that, and, uh, and I made that work because of stuff that I had picked up from my father-in-law, from one of the students that I had in high school ministry who drove me crazy, uh, and Tim. So that's who taught me how to tie ropes. I didn't take a YouTube, I didn't do anything, but by absorbing from the people around me, I could figure out how to get the chairs not only to the house, but back uh, to my house without falling all over the street and stuff. That's a picture of the inheritance that God has for us. He said, he's saying, I'm going to teach you how to do life. Your family might be a mess, but let me teach you. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, Jesus is talking, and he says, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you more work to do because you didn't get it right the first time. And he says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden that I give you is light. It's the cross. It's where our old life is crucified with Jesus and we walk out of an empty tomb with Jesus because God says, I'm not done with you yet. I'm not done with your family yet. Your amount of darkness and brokenness that you think you're bringing to me is nothing compared to my power for you. And so we see God's glory in our families as we allow God to turn us into a new creation. Our families are gonna affect us forever. That's part of being a human and caring about other people. But we also get to affect our families. We get to do that positively. We get to do that negatively. And the cross should affect both of those. As we choose to follow Jesus and let that make an impact in our lives, we've got power and authority from God to go back into our families. But you don't understand it's dark. It's bad. It's strong, it's, it's, I can't take it. And God says, I am the light that invades the darkness and I am the stronger man who ties up and plunders whatever strong strength you're going up against. We get to see God's cross and God's power and God's new life released in us make a difference in our family, to walk into the mess that there is and see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and goodness and self-control flourish because that's the God that we love and that's the God that wants to work in us. Let's stand and pray.